At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, July 24th, 2023 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited for this hour with you to help you become a more productive investor, a better investor, uh, finding ways to maximize your capital as well as your time. And a lot of that is eliminating counterproductive habits and forcing you into smarter habits, better habits, ones that don't or that aren't uh, influenced by your emotions, that aren't about tips from your friends, your cousin or your brother. It's not about a headline that you saw or a Twitter post that you saw. It's about studying the facts on the ground, understanding the assets that you're investing in, the risks and reward, uh, the positives and negatives about a particular sector or a particular company, whatever that is. And uh, it, it, this isn't about chasing returns. It's about chasing good investments, good sound investments that are aligned with your goals. Okay. And sometimes you learn, learn these things the hard way by making mistakes. Other times you can learn the easy way, which is talking to people that have been doing it for a long time that have maybe learned these mistakes uh, the hard way themselves or maybe learned from that previous generation who also uh, uh, maybe did it themselves, right? Learned the hard way themselves and gave that message, gave that advice through to the next generation. That's what we're all trying to do is take everything we've learned the, the easy way and the hard way and give you some unbiased perspective and data developed with over 20 years of investment experience. And Invest Talk is about helping you on your journey, on your quest to financial freedom. And to that end, this is about your questions and tackling your questions. But that means you have to call Invest Talk. And the phone line never closes. It's 888 chart. Now, my main focus point today looks in the story behind this question. Could this be a momentous week for bank rate, big rates, uh, and, and could there be major pivot points ahead? And this is, we, have, we know we have the Fed meeting this week, but we also have the ECB and the Bank of Japan. And both of those have a little bit different situations than we do here in the U.S., but they can mean a lot for global liquidity, global economic growth, et cetera. So we're going to dig into what we might see out of not just uh, here in the U.S., but abroad as well. Now, time permitting, I want to touch a bit on the oil industry. You might be shocked to know that shale drilling, shale number of shale rigs is actually down from the beginning of the year, despite 
oil prices being relatively stable, starting to rise recently. And there, this could be a reason for that. I'm going to talk about why that might be. Also, consumers are feeling a bit better about the economy. Why is that? And what that could mean going forward. And then lastly, Binance. Binance, this is one of the big crypto exchanges that's not public, that's private. We all know what happened to Sam Bakeman Freed's uh, exchange and uh, the issues there. Are there other problems with Binance underneath the hood? And what does this say about the crypto industry as a whole? So we're going to look at that headline as well. But ultimately, this is about you. We're going to talk, we're going to take your voice bank questions. One is on Magic Software Enterprise, MGIC, and SciPlay Corp, SCPL. We also have an iTunes review question that we're going to get to. So we have this all planned for this episode of Invest Talk. We have a perspective segment on the history of US trade policy. I want to talk about that because you might think that forever we've just had this free trade mantra. And if you go back hundreds of years, you'll know that that's a bit different. And I always say that things move in cycles and there are uh, times that everything has its day in the sun, whether that is for a particular sector or company or asset class, as well as economic policy. So we're going to look at that perspective on top of it. But most of all, this is about you and your live calls at 888 chart is how you get through and ask your question live from 4 to 5 Pacific time each and every weekday. Or if you're listening after hours, you can leave a message and we'll answer it on a future show. All right, now let's take a quick look at the market today. We had option X on Friday. So today was a lot of jockeying for position. You had some big movers, Nikola down uh, about 5%. You had Sirius XM, that was down 15%. So you had some uh, pretty big movers. AMC up 33%. That one's always uh, all over the board. Neo up about 10%. Uh, Compass up about 11%. So we've had some some big movers. We're still in the midst of earnings season, but we had overall a positive day. Broad U.S. market up about three quarters, uh, sorry, one third of one percent. And but the broad market flat to positive. Uh, and we'll see as we go into the Fed meeting on Wednesday. Usually you get light volume, not a whole lot of vol volatility up until that announcement. And we'll get to that topic a little later. But first, we're going to pivot over to our first listener question now at 888 chart Justin or Luke, thank you for all that you guys do. was hoping to get your take on Enterplus Corporation, ERF. I've held the stock for a little now. was wondering if you would buy more, sell out, or hold. Thank you. Bye. All right, this is Enter Plus, and this is a Canadian oil and gas company, and we actually own this for clients in uh, actually our cover call strategy. Yields 1.2%. Earnings are supposed to go from $3 last year to $2.31 this year, but back up to $2.87 next year, and it's only $16 stock. So trading about uh, six times forward-looking earnings, and this is a name that that they have uh, diversity of assets. They have a history of strong profitability, pretty much no debt on their balance sheet. Enterprise value to EBIT right now is at two times, two times. And historically, it trades closer to six times. 
Okay. So I, we like this name a lot. We like the cash flow. We like what they're doing, uh, with their, with that cash flow. They're, they're having a lot of, uh, discipline and not investing it uh, in in bad projects, and they're buying back shares. Back in 2021, they had 256 million shares outstanding. Now that's up down to 213 million shares outstanding. So over the last couple of years, bought back nearly 20% of their float. We really like that. And if you look at the history of their profitability, it is uh, it's pretty good, and it is probably over earning a little bit right now, but still uh, it's allocating that capital very well. And obviously if you want to gain access to the oil patch, especially in Canada, and definitely a little bit more operating leverage when it comes to oil prices. So this is going to be a little more volatile than most of your energy names because uh, of Canada. It's, it's a, it's uh, being located in Canada and it's relatively Smaller cap, right? Three and a half billion dollar market cap. Not a huge company, but but definitely well run and very profitable at the moment, and that's why we like it. All right. Now, we as we head into a break, let me tell you about our new video feature we are producing. It's called the Invest Talk Sector Spotlight, and it is free right now over on YouTube. The first episode talks about technology and its rapid innovation. We discuss AI, blockchain, cloud computing, as well as software as a service. The Invest Talk Sector Spotlight you can find right now on Invest uh, on YouTube. Excuse me, just search Invest Talk. Now the phone lines are open, waiting for your questions at eight 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 ninety nine chart. When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on. JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap because there's a lot of regulatory risk. And Steve Peasley. I, I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson Food, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24 7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888 99 Chart. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Now, our main focus point today looks in the story behind this question. Could this be a momentous week for bank rates? And we have three major central banks that are announcing decisions this week. And per usual, it's kind of like earnings where the market expectations are are x and most of the time especially in the in this uh, parlance the central banks do what the market expects the mar- central banks don't like to surprise the market but just like earnings it's not about that move it's about what they say going forward and so we have the federal reserve here in the u.s bank of japan as well as the ecb and they're all approaching pivotal moments in their monetary policy trajectory and the Fed is expected to raise a quarter point, but 
that could be the end of 10 consecutive interest rates. Well, sorry, last month was a pause after 10 consecutive increases. This would be the 11th out of 12 opportunities for them to raise rates. But it's all about what the mar- what, what they're going to signal, going to signal about next Fed meeting, which is in September and going forward. And the market right now is kind of thinking that they're going to pause. Why? Because the CPI came in right around the 3% level. Even though core CPI is still relatively elevated, a lot of that has to do with shelter CPI, which is a very lagging indicator. And so if you look at shorter term rate of change figures, inflation is relatively dead. And, And that shouldn't shock anybody considering that quick rise in interest rates. And so, you know, they're, they're, Close enough for government's work when it comes to that 2% inflation target being around the 3% rate and continuing to decelerate. I think they have room for uh, to, to be data dependent, and you're likely to see that going forward. You're likely to see uh, what happens in August, what happens in September uh, for those ju- basically July and August numbers, and that will give them more understanding of whether inflation will continue to stair-step lower. And I said this a while ago that the June number is where you're going to see that stair, that large stair step lower. But I could I could definitely see the next two months continuing that path, but probably not at the same deceleration. Right? We went from four to three basically in one CPI print. We're not going to go from three to two, most likely over the next two two months. But that's something that they're going to be watching, and they're going to communicate that they're probably data dependent and. The debate going forward is really about how dovish they want to get, right? Because the market's going to interpret them saying, hey, we're going to pause going forward most likely as a very dovish statement. They're unlikely to do that. They're, un- they're, they're likely to have uh, very hawkish rhetoric with a hint towards a pause in September. So that's most likely. And that's frankly is the least momenta, momentous uh, aspect of what's happening uh, in the central bank world because the Fed's already at 5%. 25 basis points, it's a small move relatively, right? Whereas the ECB, they're at about 3.5%, okay? And they raised rates last month to that level. And so another 25 basis points is, as a percentage terms, right, much higher, the delta of the delta. And the market's pricing in a 99% chance of another 25% hike on Thursday. Not 25%, 25 basis point hike on Thursday. Now, inflation has come down, but it's still elevated, 5.5% as of late. And once again, the key focus is on the future path of those rates. And it looks like, and that's why the euro's gotten stronger and the dollar's gotten weaker, it looks like the, the the ECB is on a path to hike a little bit more as opposed to the Fed likely pausing. Now, the, in, in Japan, the exact opposite has happened. They've had yield curve control for a while. And what uh, what you're likely to see going forward on Bank of Japan is saying, hey, a split decision on them doing nothing because they haven't done anything for a while. But that would indicate that going forward, maybe later in the year, in the fall, that they actually may raise interest rates from the negative 0.1% that the short-term target is at now. And that's because they are finally above. 2.7% was their inflation rate uh, last month. And 
Uh, sorry, that was 3.3, which is above the 2% target. So they have room now to raise rates. Now we're heading into a break, so give me a call now at 888-99-CHART. Everybody wants a secure financial future, but getting there takes strategy and discipline. So Justin Klein and Steve Peasley are always ready to take your calls. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Let's go to Jordan in Dana Point, just one city south of me. Jordan, are you do you own PKX or are you looking to buy it? Uh, yeah, I own it. It's been on a really good run. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if I should. Yeah, it just it did go on a pretty nice run here. Let's see. It, it went from just uh, about two weeks ago. It was hanging around the 75 level, and now we're at 118. And today was very high volume, very, very high volume. Closed kind of near the lows. And that is typically a sign of exha- exhaustion one way or the other, when there's, high, there's a, a large, quick move, one way or the other, up or down, and then you have large volume around, around that move, that is an indicator that you're kind of at that extreme. And so this is definitely a time that you probably want to trim your position at the very least. And depending on what you value the company at, uh, you might want to eliminate completely. Because you know the steel industry historically is very volatile. And for everyone out there, this is a South Korean, the largest South Korean Korean steel producer and it's one of the best run steel producers in the world so that so so you're on on the right track here but obviously economics dictate uh profitability and margins etc uh and this is one where it's trading at forward-looking earnings now about in the, in the low teens, which this doesn't tend to trade at high multiples. So I think this is a time where you definitely want to trim, Jordan. Awesome. Thank you, Justin. No problem. Thanks for the call. That was Posco Holdings, Posco Steel out of South Korea, PKX. Now let's swing back to the InvestDoc Voice Bank for a fresh question from an from a listener. Hi, Steve or Justin. This has been from Virginia. Just calling again. Thank you so much again for all the help uh, and advice you all provide. I have a twofold question. One is uh, the first is actually about a strategy that I use, uh, and then another is about a stock that was found by that strategy. The strategy is uh, I know you guys have uh, touted, uh, not touted, but have uh, said that you agree with Joel Greenblatt in the past. I use his magic formula filter, and then I eliminate sectors that I am not interested in, and then I look at the stocks. And only look at the ones that um, have very little to no debt and then have an estimated profit for next year in the positive. And then I start from there. I was wondering what you thought of that just in general. And I usually I don't even use anything fancy. I just use Finviz for that data. So I know I could probably improve that. But I was just wondering what you thought of that strategy. One of the stocks that I found with that strategy is um, SCPL. I play and it's done really well for me. I've made a 60% or so return on my initial or average return on my initial investment in it. It moved from below 3% of my portfolio to now almost four. So I wondered if now you thought with that in mind, it was maybe a time to trim all things considered, or if this is one of those things that might uh, be worth hanging on to, or even uh, watering my grower here. If you uh, have a chance to put this on podcast and answer it, I'd be much obliged. And again, thank you so much for all you do. Well, I think your your the basis of this strategy is is just fine. Obviously, it's overly probably over, overly simplified, but uh, you know you're 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 focusing in the right areas, so that's good. Now you're also looking at SCPL SciPlay Corp, 
And this is getting bought out, it looks like, by Light and Wonder. LNW is the symbol. And it looks like they're acquiring the 17% equity in SciPlay that it does not already own. So it already owned the majority of this company anyway, but it's acquiring the rest of it for $20 per share in cash. Now, currently, as the close today, it's trading at $19.49, fluctuating a little bit, but Obviously, this is uh, probably going to take a little while to finally close, but your upside is basically 20 bucks. So I would probably, if you have better use for this capital, I would probably sell it and move on and find another one maybe uh, within your strategy and in your, in your filter. And so uh, I think this is a time for, for you to sell. And you know, when there are buyout offers, unless you think there's going to be a bidding war, and typically the market will tell you that. The market will tell you that by the price of the stock trading above the offer price in the market and or the offer price that, that the acquirer is offering. So uh, if it is, then you know maybe you want to wait, could potentially get multiple bids, etc. This one trading at 1949. I think that's fine. I, I don't see any reason why why you want to hold on to it. It's probably going to sell for 20 bucks, and you probably could use that capital better right now. Thanks for the call. Now, let's touch a bit on... Actually, we're going to go into a break here. Uh, but after the break, I want to get into the oil industry and the fact that you're starting to see some interesting trends when it comes to shale rigs and not just... Th- the ones that the large public companies are drilling, but also private companies as well. And there's some dynamics between the two that are causing public companies to not necessarily grow their rig count, but at least maintain it. But the private companies are cutting their rig count. And I'm going to talk about why after the break. Now, in the next Invest Talk, we'll look into the story behind this warning. Don't go chasing recent returns. One market strategist is warning against mistaking performance for future returns. That story tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E. Dot com, hackerone.com.
rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Now let's touch on the shale industry, the the oil industry, and and the vast majority of the output growth in the energy patch over the past decade has been from shale oil. Now it's become kind of a swing producer. It used to be Saudi Arabia was a swing producer, and, and OPEC meetings were a lot more important to the oil patch. Uh, but now it's a lot about shale oil and the growth out of that space. And what's interesting is that the industry is actually shedding a lot of rigs at the fastest pace since the height of the COVID crisis, despite the fact that oil prices have remained relatively steady. And it's interesting is that it's, there's a dichotomy between the private companies, which added a ton of rigs over the past couple of years, versus the large public companies. And public companies overall aren't really changing their drilling programs. They're happy to sit on large inventories uh, of undrilled wells. Uh, but these private companies, they have a lot less wells. And so they, when, they, when they ramped up production, they tap their best wells first. And what's interesting is now, remember, shale wells deplete very fast. So they don't, you, they're not long live assets. You don't sit there and just pump from them for multiple decades. They decline at an exponential rate. Now they're getting better at slowing that rate, but it still declines. And the number of rigs from oil and gas has dropped to, to about 670 from around 800 at the beginning of the year. Private drillers account for roughly 70% of that decrease. And remember, private drillers have a lot less uh, wells than the large ones because they have so much capital and they've invested so much. And, and so what you're seeing is that larger companies mostly aren't really shedding. They're, they're, they aren't really growing rapidly either, but they're about capital restraint. And they learned a lot from the 2000, roughly 14 period when they just borrowed a bunch of money, levered up their balance sheets and focused a lot more on supply growth. And that's changed. We've talked about that, how now, now the C-suite are incentivized to return capital to shareholders, even through stock buybacks, dividends, paying down debt, etc. And what you're seeing is that for the private drillers, not only do a lot of those still have debt on their balance sheet and the cost of that debt is going up. And so going out there and drilling more wells, investing more CapEx into these wells is more expensive. And then if you look at the, the break-even costs, those are going up as well because the cost of materials are going up. And you know, for example, steel pipes, they're still up 40% over the last 18 months. And so when you saw prices at $120 per barrel, it was fine. It was easy. But now that it's kind of hanging around the 75 mark, it's kind of the average for the year. It's still profitable, but not big juicy profits. And so 
they're a lot more selective on putting wells to work. And the small frackers have exhausted a lot of those wells, mainly in uh, the Permian Basin, and that growth is starting to slow. And what you're seeing is that in the Delaware portion of the Permian Basin, the break-even rate is up 34% since 2021 to $43 per barrel. The Permian Midland region is up 39% over the same period to $47 per barrel. And Weak natural gas prices are playing into this as well. The bigger companies, they're able to kind of spread these higher costs amongst a uh, a larger number of wells and keep that efficiency, whereas these smaller ones, they're they're having more difficulty. And public executives uh, continue to signal that inflation in the oil patch has started to subside. But they want to hold on to that profitability. And once again, they're having a lot better capital discipline. So this is to show you that maybe in the back half of the year, I've said this for a while, I didn't expect the first half to be very bullish for oil prices. But as you've seen, these these rig counts drop throughout the year. That's going to feed into new supply in the back half and into 2024. And that's why I, I, I have a that's why you're starting to see, I think, oil prices go up. Because there isn't that that swing producer is no longer putting more capital towards uh, growth of supply, and in fact, those smaller private producers are doing the opposite. They're actually shrinking their rig count overall and saving the best wells for maybe when we get back above a hundred dollars per barrel. Now, my perspective is coming up soon, but first, let's squeeze another caller question in at eight 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 ninety nine chart. Hi, Justin Steve. I'm calling today about the Toro Company, the Griffin Bowl. That's positioning right now, and I was wondering if you think now is a good time to add to it. Let me know your thoughts. Thank you very much. All right, looking at the Toro company, and we've owned this actually for clients for a good amount of time. It's one of my favorite industrial companies out there. Why? Not because it's the cheapest, but it's one of the best run in the space. Not a very, not a huge company, about $11 billion market cap, so right in the mid-cap space. But historically, its profitability and return on equity is averaged in the mid-30% range, and that's where it's at now, 37%. So it's a very well-run company. It has pretty much no debt, very minimal amount of debt on its balance sheet. Its cash flow just continues to remain robust. It's And, and it just has very solid consistent cash flow that they used to buy back more stock 10 years ago they had 114 million shares outstanding now it's 104 so they've continued to not at a brisk pace but continually uh pay down uh, the number of shares throughout the last decade and they've just been good allocators of capital as pulled back as of late let's see Let's go to a chart real quick. Its high was right around $117 per share, pulled back to right around 96, and now we're at 103. And overall, the long-term trajectory continues to make a series of higher highs and higher lows. And so this is a very well-run business, very well-run company, not the biggest, but it does have consistent growth kind of in the mid-teens. That's why it does trade at a pretty, you know, above average multiple, but it's a well above average industrial company trading at uh let's see about 20 times forward-looking earnings maybe a little less 19 times forward-looking earnings and earnings supposed to go up 14 percent this year 11 percent next year 1.3 percent dividend very solid company and i think it's a buy right here 
Now, my perspective looks at the historical aspect of aspects of U.S. trade policy, and as you might imagine, this could be a long and complex story. But for the sake of time restriction, I'll attempt to distill it into bites, small bites. Okay, and first off, if you look at International trade and trade policy today in 2023 continues to be pretty controversial. But if you look back in the history, you know the United States has been on and off when it comes to its trade policy. Now, if you look at that, it's just the last half century. Yeah, it's all about open markets, open borders, etc. But that all hasn't always been the case. For most of U.S. history... We had a fairly substantial barrier to imports. Why? Because we try to protect domestic producers from foreign competition. This is not anything new. We used to do that a long time ago. And if you look at the average tariff, you will know that in the 1790s, about th- the average tariff was about 15% of the cost of a good. And it rose consistently generating additional revenue to help finance the war of 1812. In fact, one of our founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton, wrote a report on manufacturers, and it called for the government to support manufacturing through subsidies and import tariffs. Now, these recommendations were widely not, not widely uh, implemented, but he wrote a lot about it. He was a big fan of these type of tariffs. Now, in 1807... Thomas Jefferson, another founding father, he was the third president of the United States. And when he was, he was responsible for a very restrictive trade policy. In fact, at his request, Congress imposed a nearly complete embargo on international commerce from December 1807 to March of 1809. And this had a profound impact on the economy, as you would expect. Exports, export-weighted average of price in raw cotton, flour, tobacco, and rice exported fell by one-third within a month or two. A lot of that had to do with, hey, less ships coming in, less ships to ship things out. Okay, The price of imported commodities rose by a third because of lack of ships coming into harbors. Now, the static welfare cost of the embargo was about 5% of GDP. That's what this embargo cost economically. Now, it was only in effect for a couple of years, but it was a test that obviously failed. Now, for most of the 19th century, the United States had a strong comparative advantage in things like agricultural products, cotton, grain, meat products, etc., and we exported them in exchange for manufactured goods. That was mainly our economy up until the late, 19, 18th, late 1800s when we started the Industrial Revolution. About 1850 onwards, that, traded, that, that changed dramatically, right? The mid-1890s, America export of manufacturers surged. Manufactured goods jumped from 20% of U.S. exports in 1890 to 35% by 1900 and nearly 50% by 1913. 
In about two decades, the United States reversed a century-old pattern and became the largest net exporter of manufactured goods in just a couple of decades. Between 1880 and 1900, American steel products production grew from 1.25 million a year to more than 10 million a year. And by 1910, America was producing 24 million tons per year, far more than any in the world, any country in the world. So that's kind of the history of our trade. Uh, and obviously, these policy sentiments kind of ebb and flow. And so it shouldn't shock you that this is uh, a, a time when th this is a time when the protectionist policies are increasing, and that probably will will continue until there's major ramifications like that embargo that I just talked about, uh, and then you might get a reversal. But for now, I think that trend is going to be more protectionist policies. Now let's grab another caller question now from eight 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 ninety nine chart. Hey Steve and Justin, wanted to get your opinion on two stocks that I feel have a uh, benefit in this wild economy, or they don't, and I don't know what I'm looking at, but the two stocks I'm looking at is ticker symbol H-I-M-X and ticker symbol M-G-I-C. Wanted to get your insight on these two stocks. One of them is a semiconductor video production type stock. The other one is going to be more database. Wanted to get an opinion on what y'all thought about these two stocks. Thanks, y'all. Appreciate your time. All right. One is Hymax Technologies. This is a Taiwanese designer of display drivers for flat panel TVs. The issue here is the history of its business. Profitability is all over the place. And I don't like those businesses. I don't like those businesses that profitability is all over the place. And the good thing is they have minimal debt. You're probably chasing that 6.6% dividend yield. But history says, let me pull this up here. The dividend yield is likely not consistent. Let's see this. Less dividend amount, 48 cents. Yeah, then that's down from $1.25 middle of last year. So if you go based on 48 cents, that's not a 6.6% dividend yield. And there was a Taiwanese company, so uh, it's usually once a year when it comes to its dividend, uh, dividend policy. Um, so... You know, you're only getting that once a year, and it fluctuates wildly. Back in 2019, it was only 10 cents. Now it's 48 cents. Who says it can't go back to 10 cents? Why? Because its profitability is going down dramatically from a, went from 268 to sorry 265 in 2021 to 58 last year. It's supposed to be only 33 cents this year. So very likely that dividend is going down uh, dramatically. So definitely a big fat no on HIMX. Now. On the other one, which was, let's see, MGIC. Let's take a look at this one. It is an Israeli provider of business application software, okay, and consulting services. Now, one thing I like is their business is a lot more consistent, okay? Earnings in 2016 were four, it was 44 cents, and it's basically increased its earnings every single year since. Yeah, it has. At a slow pace, single digits maybe, but I like that. Now, you're also probably after that dividend. Let's take a look at that dividend, 4.8%. Last dividend amount was $0.30. Cents. This is also a foreign company, so let me guess. It's paying, okay, this pays, it does pay quarterly. Okay, so that's a positive, or does it? No, actually it doesn't. 
Yeah, last played August 29th of last year and then April 6th of this year. So a big gap between and it's more it's very volatile. Um, I definitely like this one better because of that consistency. They don't have any debt on their balance sheet. That's a positive. It's pretty low growth. So, you know, don't expect, uh, uh, you know, a big growth here. But the problem is that the technicals are very poor. It peaked in uh, early last year, so it tells me it's a it's a growthier name, right? In the software space, around twenty five dollars per share. Now it's at twelve fifty eight, and it continues to just march lower and lower. So definitely more interesting, but the technicals are too poor for me to jump on. So I'm saying no to both of these. Now Gary from San Jose, hang on, you'll be next on Invest Talk. My phone line never closes. It's eight 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 ninety nine chart. Each day, InvestTalk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for InvestTalk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Let's go to Gary in San Jose who wants to talk about import duties. So um, we're a small manufacturer in San Jose. We actually buy raw materials, make the whole product there. Mm-hmm. And what we have uh, found out now is that finished goods coming into the U.S. against our products mm-hmm. are about half of what the duties are for the raw materials that we have to purchase overseas because they're not available in the U.S. Interesting. So I think a large, a large part what has happened is these big companies, they make a deal with a senator or whatever, say, hey, I'm going to put a warehouse in your state. Can you uh, work something out on the duty on this stuff? And so what ends up happening is finished goods come in at about half of what we have to pay for raw materials. And here's the second thing. Yeah. When, we're, when we sell our product overseas, a lot of companies – have a duty that's twice as high as ours. So when we go to China, their duty is about 30%, and our duty on their same product coming into the U.S. is 6 Yeah, so that's that's something that most people don't realize is that China has very protectionist policies when it comes to them importing uh, goods from other countries. And so, yeah, getting that to more parity, uh, I think they've they've come a long way. Obviously, Trump, uh, the Trump tariffs uh, improved that situation. Biden really didn't really change much. He, he you know, around the margins and, and yeah. uh, formalized a lot of it. Um, but it also depends on what industry you're talking about. Not every, not every industry is, totally. is created yeah. equal, you know? So yeah. it, it, like you said, maybe it's, uh, there, there's, there's more lobbying uh, for certain uh, parts of, of, of different uh, industries, whether that is th- those on, on the behalf of the exporters or the importers. Um, so how do you handle that? How do you handle the co- competition who can easily oh. undercut you? So we don't have a you know basket of lawyers that we can put in on this, but mm-hmm. you know if we write our congressman or whatever, you know it's just you know on deaf ears. And mm-hmm. same way with Europe. Europe is about double. So our products in Europe are about fifteen to twenty percent duty. But again, coming into Europe, coming into the U.S. from Europe, it's about six to eight percent. So. Yeah. Really, a big disadvantage. And what uh, what industry are you in? What sector? 
Well, I, I won't say because it'll really give it away, but it's oh, a, got it. I'd say it's a commodity-type item. and I mean, it's, it's specialized, but uh-huh. it's not high-tech at all. Got it. Okay. So. Yeah, I mean, that's that's where our advantage here in the U.S. mainly is, is on the high-tech manufacturing and, and obviously with sure. the lower lower uh, labor costs uh, abroad. Uh they can they can produce those uh, low level uh, products uh, cheaper and easier, um, and then obviously there are protectionist policies. Whether that are the those are the tariffs we talked about with China, or in a lot of times it's subsidies subsidizing those industries so they can compete okay. uh, with, with ours uh, here domestically. And I think uh, the good thing is, uh, I think the best accomplishment uh, for Trump uh, was that he put an eye towards this right. What this competitive uh, landscape that needs to be improved on, right? Industrial policy and trade policy. That there was kind of this mantra of free trade, uh, low tariffs, and that's better for all. But obviously, due to the the Rust Belt and 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 the problems that uh, and the hollowing out of that those areas, it's pretty clear that that policy didn't doesn't work long term uh it creates too much resentments uh, too too many economic problems uh now it's just a matter of you know who can actually address it uh in a in a more targeted way and in a way that doesn't kill business overall and profitability but uh can improve uh the the domestic uh uh, businesses equitable more equitable yeah yeah, exactly, uh, and that's that's a challenge. I don't think it's any anything any one person has uh, the answer to, uh, but it's definitely something that w- I think was going to continue to be a trend going forward, and will probably improve businesses, improve uh, our, our domestic supply chains. You're already seeing it uh, with companies investing here in America, and I don't think they would do that if they didn't see. Excuse me, didn't see a comparative advantage to what uh, their production costs are overseas. So uh, I think we're at the start of it, but it's going to take many years to solve this issue. But thanks for the call and the input. I love these. Now, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. And remember to follow Invest Talk on our social media channels. Instagram, and YouTube. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president, and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.